You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. I think it's been a number of months, maybe last fall or so, when I was with you. So it's nice to be back with you. But uh, before I begin this morning, I, I'm afraid I, I have a confession that I, I have to make. It's only, it's only right. It's only fair. If I'm going to stand up here, I have to, uh, I have to confess. They say it's good for the soul. <clears throat> I hate malls. No, I mean, I really, I really hate them all. Woodland, Rivertown Crossing, doesn't matter. Now, I, I try not to, you know, I try not to knock other people's religion. And I know that for some of you, you know, the mall is the closest thing uh, on earth to heaven that you will experience. Not so for me. I hate to shop. I hate all things shopping. I'm the guy who goes into Meyer. That's, I guess, if I have to go, that's where I'll go, and I, I hate Meyer too. Um, I'm the guy who goes in with a list, uh, and I want, I've got the shortest, you know, path planned out, because, of course, at Meyer they make you go to all four corners of the store, no matter what you need. And, uh, you know, I've got the app, and I scan my own groceries, and I bag, and I get out with talking to as few people as possible. Um, that's the introvert in, in me, and I don't know if they have a 12-step program for people like me, but it, it is the burden I, I, I carry around. Um, but I will tell you this, there is one thing that the mall is good for, for a person like myself, and it's watching people. People are infinitely interesting. In fact, watching people is sometimes better than actually talking to them, honestly. Um, it's, that's, I think that is the shopping mall's real contribution to Western civilization, is the capacity to watch the strange and the wonderful that make up uh, the human condition. But you want to know there is actually there's something better than the mall. If you're into like people watching, there is an there is a infinitely better uh, opportunity to watch people. And it, it, is, it is the Comic-Con. If you've never been to... Oh, okay, we have an, we have an aficionado or two. If, uh, if you've never been to a comic convention, um, oh boy, that's, it's the best. Um, in addition to, so why would you go to Comic Cons? Well, in addition to, I think I was here last time, my book, The Bellowing of Cain, was just on its way out. This is just a flyer, but it's what it looks like. It came out in January. But beyond that, I have a, 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 a number of fantasy fiction titles that, that I have, have written. So I spend actually a number of weekends a year sitting at uh, comic conventions kind of all over the Midwest, kind of hawking my books. Last weekend, you know, was the big Lansing one. So um, I spent a lot of time there, and honestly, it is some of the most interesting. Uh, you meet the best, the beautiful, the strange, the unsettling. You'll find it all at a comic convention. Yeah. Now, why do, I, why do I tell you all of this? Uh, why, why does it matter? Well, <clears throat> because there's a certain kind of eye that you have to put on when you're watching people. Like, if you really want to see what's going on, if you really want to know what's, you know, watching the conversations, guessing the stories behind the interactions, oh, look, a marital fight, you know, what's going on there. If you really, you've got to have eyes to see, you've got to have ears to hear, that sort of thing. And, and you're in the middle of a series on the parables of Jesus, the great stories that Jesus told, the teaching stories. 
And today's parable, often called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from, from Luke 18, is actually a case study in people watching. It, it's, it's, it's hard to even call it a parable or a story because nothing actually really happens in it. There's no action. There's no like farmer going out and sowing seed. There's no, there's no stewards, you know, carrying around bags of gold. There's, there's nothing that actually happens. It's the kind of story that you might get from sitting around watching people. In fact, Jesus tells it as if you were sort of sitting at the temple watching the people come in doing things. And Jesus is going to teach us a lesson from simply watching people. But I've already misled you a little bit because Jesus really isn't interested in giving us just a lesson today. See, Jesus didn't tell these stories. Did not, Jesus did not speak the parables for, say, the same reason Aesop told his stories. You know, 500 years before Jesus, Aesop told all of his stories with his talking animals and all the things like that, Aesop's fables. And, and Aesop told his stories to sort of portray or give us clever moral tidbits. Yeah, to common sense wisdom, you know, on how to live life. Do this, not that. Beware of this, embrace that. If you, in fact, they're more like Solomon's Proverbs than anything Jesus ever said. Because Jesus told his stories for, frankly, a far more scandalous purpose. Jesus' core message was not one of moral improvement. Jesus did not come to simply make us better people. They didn't put Jesus on the cross because of his theory of morality, which, frankly, was not much different than all the great moral teachers who preceded him and who have come since. Love God and love neighbor is not scandalous. In fact, Jesus only said that because he was asked a question. That wasn't his core message. Jesus' core message was something far more subversive and dangerous. Remember, it, it's something they killed him for. His message in his mouth that he received from John the Baptist and took over was this. Repent. The kingdom of God has come. It's at hand. It's right before you. 125 times in the gospel, Jesus talks about this kingdom. Ten times alone in the Sermon on the Mount. It was this message that the kingdom of God has come near to earth once again. And more shockingly, more scandalously, it has come near in himself. He is the fulfillment of the kingdom. He is the kingdom come. He is the king. He is the kingdom. And the means by which, the only means by which any of us will ever enter it. That's why they killed him. Because that was not a message that they could abide. There is no understanding Jesus, his message, or anything about him without understanding the kingdom that he proclaimed, represented, and authored. And that's including the parables. Because he spoke these stories not to make us better, wiser, more virtuous people. That's not what Jesus was interested in. He came because he wanted us to understand what the kingdom of God was like. More to the point, what, kingdoms, what citizens of that kingdom are like. How they live. How they interact. When you see them at the mall, how do you pick them out? That was Jesus' mission. 
And that's why so many of the parables, and you've seen this already, I think we're in you know, week four, five, six, I don't know how far into it you are down here. Um, that's why so many of these parables begin with the line, the kingdom of God is like. It's not a theory of morality that Jesus is trying to put before our eyes. It's a vision of the world, what the world is really like, what's really going on in it, and surely what it will certainly one day become. And even though today's parable, the one we're going to climb inside of in a few minutes, does not begin with that statement, the kingdom of God is like, it is clearly one of these kingdom stories, because while we're in Luke 18, if you were to back up just one chapter to Luke 17, you would find out why Jesus gave this parable, and it's because he's having an interaction with the Pharisees. And they have asked him, when is the kingdom of God going to come? When? And Jesus pulls out his watch and says, what time is it? He begins to talk through some, actually, some quite disturbing teaching and several parables. His disciples get in the mix and ask questions. And so that's what sets up this parable that Jesus is talking about when the kingdom of God is coming. And to that point today, Jesus in this story is going to lay before us two kinds of people. Two various responses to God. Two kinds of perspectives that we'll have about ourselves. Because Jesus was very clear all throughout the Gospels that not everyone is going to understand these stories. In fact, a lot of people will miss them. Not everyone has eyes to see and ears to hear what the kingdom of God is really like. Not, not everybody really wants to. It's an old saying, be careful what you wish for because you may get it. Be careful if you want to see the kingdom. It may not look like what you expected. But your choice today regarding the kingdom, your choice today regarding these, these two options that are set before you are going to determine your response to all the rest of the stories you're going to hear in this series, all the rest of the parables. So I say to you this morning, as Jesus did, if you have eyes to see, see. If you have ears to hear, listen. The audience that Jesus speaks to in Luke 18 is actually quite vague. He, the chapter opens up, or the, the, the passage opens up with simply, Jesus spoke to those who think themselves righteous and look down on others. Well, who is it that thinks themselves righteous and looks down on others? That could be anybody. It could have been, you know, the Jews looking down on the Gentiles. It could have been the Pharisees looking down on their fellow Jews. It could have been the Greeks and the Romans looking down upon the Jewish people. It could be us. Looking down on our neighbors, colleagues, relationships, on our fellow worshipers. Perhaps you've already had the thought this morning, what's wrong with them? They've got their hands up, or they don't. It could be any of us. Luke is the only one who records this story, and his placement of it seem, in, in, the, in the book seems to make the point, because the, the story that follows this, if you kind of keep reading, you'll find it's after Jesus says, I'm telling a story here about those who think themselves righteous and look down on others. The immediately next thing that happens is the story of the children who want to come to Jesus, and the disciples won't let them. Why? Because they're just kids. Was no one listening? Luke seems to have placed this very strategically. We need to do better. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, this parable will feel familiar in its structure. The structure of this parable is called a syncresis, which means a, a comparison of two opposites. And you've already seen this. You've actually seen it the last two consecutive weeks here. 
You've seen in, in previous stories, the stories about wheat versus weeds or tares. You've seen wise builders versus foolish builders. This is a comparison of two opposites. This parable is just like that in its structure. It compares two people, two men, who come to the temple to pray. It's framed as a parable about prayer insofar as each of these men are... In fact, the parable opens up with this line. This is the first line of the story. So two men, once upon a time... Two men went up to the temple to pray. Literally up because Jerusalem sets on hills. And they didn't think about up as like north. They thought of it literally. You go up to the temple. Like. <sighs> so two men pant up the hill to the temple to pray. Now understand this is not a how-to parable on, on how to pray. That's not its point. In fact, you just recently came through a series on the Lord's Prayer, right? Which the point of that was when you pray, pray like this. Well, that's not the point in this story. Prayer is not the goal or the point. It's merely, it's merely the mechanism that's going to reveal what's going on in the heart of each of our two characters. Because it's what's in the heart that matters to this story. So, enter the story, if you will, with me now. Imagine the Temple Mount, whatever that looks like to you is fine this morning. I don't have pictures, you know. The worshipers gathered around, the sacrifices are going on, both in the courtyard and in behind the curtains where you can't see. You know, got the, the place where the Gentiles gather and the place where the men gather and the place where the women gather. The sounds of the horns and the bells, the smell of the incense and the blood, what C.S. Lewis called the smell of the holy. Well, into this environment comes two men. They come to pray. And Jesus selects, again, Syncresis, selects two people from nearly opposite ends of the social spectrum. So let's meet them before we hear what they say. Let's consider each of them before we see what they do. The first, we're told, is a Pharisee. Now, you probably have thoughts about Pharisees. We all do. But our view of the Pharisees is, is actually pretty skewed. It's pretty inaccurate, an ac inaccurate image of what the Pharisees were like. And I think the reason for that is because we watched all the interactions they had with Jesus and they don't come off well. When they're, when they're talking to Jesus. We tend to see them in exactly the opposite light they would have been seen within their culture. Because in fact, we even use the word pharisaical as like an insult, as, as someone who's uh, proud or legalistic or closed-minded. We rank them roughly in the same camp as, as politicians, particularly of the party you didn't vote for. Right? But culturally, at the time, Pharisees would have been very highly regarded by the average Jew. They would have been the one to which any Jewish listener of this story would have expected to be praised for their religious devotion. It's more the way you might think. You're like, oh, who here is the most devoted, the most pious? Well, one option would be to say, well, it's, we might expect our past, the pastors here to be that person. Now, I did not just compare Pastor Brad to the Pharisees. Sorry, that's not the point. But the point of reference is, is this, that if there's anyone you should expect to be devout, godly, uh, having the right behavior, doing the right things, it would be your pastoral staff, I guess, right? That would be like the minimum expectation. Well, that's kind of how the Jews would have looked at the Pharisees. They were the religious elite. If anyone could be expected to be praised for godly behavior, it would be them. And indeed, we're going to discover it's not the, the Pharisee's behavior, it's not his acts of righteousness for, for which he is critiqued. It's something else. But hang on to him because someone else has just come in. The camera pans. We now meet a second person. We meet 
the publican. Now, that's actually the old English, the King James version of it. When you hear the word publican, in fact, for, for, year, for centuries, it was the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. And when you hear the word publican, if you, if you have any association with it at all, you might think of like a barkeep, like literally the keeper of a pub. But literally what was going on in Chaucerian English at that time, they're actually thinking publican in terms of simply a public official. This person's a, a kind of politician. Well, actually, more accurately, in the Roman context, what you're dealing with is literally a tax collector. A man who worked for the Roman government, collected Roman taxes from his fellow Jews. And that meant to the Jews what it probably means to you. Someone who takes away your hard-earned money. And if you'd like to get a sense of how they thought about tax collectors, you, you might have a sense if you would just imagine what you might do if an IRS auditor showed up at the door of your house. Like you'd be tempted to like, you know, shut off the lights, go hide in the bedroom, and keep it all quiet like it's Halloween. Like, nobody home, we're not playing, go away. In fact, the people, Jewish people hated tax collectors. They saw them as thieves, as Roman sellouts, as tools of government oppression. In fact, the Mishnah, which is one of the earliest Jewish commentaries on the scriptures, actually classified tax collectors or publicans with murderers and robbers, people to whom you were not even obliged to tell the truth. Well, I got no money, and you were perfectly legit. That's how much they were hated. So this whole parable is about two very different kind of men who have now come to the temple to pray. And now we have to consider their prayers, what it is that they say and do, because their prayers are as different from each other as different as the two men are. So let's return to the Pharisee, because he's standing in the middle of the crowd. Before I read to you what happens here, I, just, I want to note, because it's very important for you to, to see this difference, I would like you to note how briefly his posture is described compared to how long his prayer is. Just note that. Here's what he says. So the Pharisee, standing by himself, prays thusly, O God, I thank you that I am not like other men, not like extortioners and the unjust or the adulterers or you know, even, even like this tax collector back here hiding behind the curtain. See, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, just we'll pause here and open a parenthesis here. This is, this is just for curiosity's sake, a textual note for those of who might consider themselves the Bible geeks in the room. It's very interesting. There's a bit of a textual problem here in this narrative here about how the Pharisees' posture is. Go ahead and show it up there. No, the, the middle one. That one. Those translations, English translations, translate it, he stood by himself as if like he stood aloof from everyone else. But it could also be translated, as many other English translators do, he stood and prayed about or of himself, which has a slightly different connotation. Again, the manuscript evidence is pretty even between them. Put your money down, make your choice. It ultimately doesn't matter which English translation you're using because you're going to get the same effect. That both by his posture and his prayer, the meaning is unmistakable. It emphasizes aloofness and separation from everyone else. In fact, his first words, if we go back to that passage, confirm it. God, no, you're right. That was right. Perfectly good. Keep going. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's the core of his prayer. Now, I want you to note here the error in his prayer that Jesus is going to identify is not what he does. It's not the actions he performs. It's not the fasting and the giving tithes. 
That's not the problem. In fact, by those actions that he's performing, he's doing nothing other than keeping the Mosaic law. He's doing what the law requires. The problem isn't even necessarily that he identifies those behaviors, that I've actually done this. It's not uncommon throughout Scripture. In fact, you find it all the time for a petitioner, someone coming to God, to outline what they have done, that they have obeyed God's commands as a part of entry into prayer. That's not uncommon. David does it all the time in the Psalms of Innocence. He talks about all the things he has done to keep the covenant, right? Job, in the book of Job, spends most of the book doing this. Like, I don't deserve what I'm getting because I'm righteous. I've done these things. In fact, before this chapter's done, there's going to be a fellow who we call the rich young ruler who's going to to come to Jesus asking about, can he have eternal life, and is going to stake his entire claim on the fact that he has obeyed the commandments, It is not uncommon for people to do such things. And you should not misread this parable. This parable is not spoken against vigorous obedience to God's commands. That is not the problem. I don't know why we would ever think it was. The issue here is not what he does. The issue here is what's going on in his heart. More specifically, what kind of worshiper he thinks he is. The error of the Pharisee is surely that he thinks he can be obedient to God to obey the law and still have disdain for people like the tax collector. That he can fulfill all the laws of God, all the commands of God, and yet pay no attention to the the love command, to love one another. He is sure that his acts are sufficient to put him in good standing with God. And so what may have started as a very legitimate affirmation of of his covenant-keeping has now derailed into disdain, comparison, and self-congratulation. It is as if the real idea behind his prayer is that God should bless him because it's what he deserves. Dear Lord, in fact, you might summarize his prayer this way, I'm not like others, so Lord, give me what's fair. Give me what I deserve. Give me the recompense of my godly behavior. Now, the problem with such a prayer, ultimately, is that it only works because you're comparing yourself to someone who's worse off than you are. And if you can do that, if you can find someone that's worse off than you are, you can always come off smelling like roses. But there's a problem here. That's not really his situation. The Pharisee compares himself to his fellow worshipers, and he comes off pretty good. Now, before we see the results of this, let's pause, because remember, there's another man in the room, and he's also come to pray a prayer, a prayer that's very different, the the prayer of the publican. Now, again, before I I read it and tell you what it is, I'd like you to note now the difference. The prayer itself is different. Think about how many words are used to describe his posture versus how short his prayer is. He's the exact opposite of this man, even in his prayers. So here's what it says in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We're told he stands at a distance, like in the backdrop, behind a curtain, just near the door. Why? Because it's almost as if he's ritually unclean. He doesn't have a right to be there, and he knows it. His prayer has these strong sacrificial overtones as if he was saying, as if the the pith of it were something like, dear Lord, you know those sacrifices that are going on over there, those sacrifices that the priests are doing? Let those count for me. Let those be mine also. 
His presence there is an offense to every other worshiper. And yet, his presence there is an act of faith. He doesn't belong. He knows he doesn't belong. But he knows that God has offered forgiveness. And so he comes in faith to the temple to embrace God's forgiveness on God's terms and nothing else. It's all he has. It's his only hope. See, unlike the Pharisee who compared himself to other men and seemed to come off so favorably, our tax collector knows better. He knows better. There's no one he can compare himself to because he is the forsaken. He is the socially marginalized. He is the hated. He is the abandoned. He is the man that everyone else looks at and in their eyes is hopelessly lost. And so he has to make a different comparison. He can't compare. There's no one else in the room he can't compare himself to. And so, unlike the Pharisee who compares himself to others, his prayer, summarized, is more like this. I am not like you, oh God. So be merciful. Nobody comes off well in this comparison. None of us. Not a soul. Comparing yourself to others may make, you, may make you feel pretty good, but comparing yourself to the righteousness of God will devastate you. Comparing your holiness to God's will leave you broken. See, unlike the Pharisee, his cry is not for his just desert because he knows what that will be if it is given. His cry, rather, is for mercy. Kyrie eleison, Lord, be merciful. The only truly honest prayer any of us can ever pray. Now, here's, here's why, before we kind of bring the story to its end, we've seen the two men, we've seen their prayers. Before we see how it ends, I would just want you to understand why this story is so foundational, as I said, to how you understand and how you interact with all the rest of the parables. Because... These two men show us something rather uncomfortable and unexpected, both about Jesus and about ourselves. See, I, I spent most of my life, um, I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor, so I mean, I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly over the years. I spent most of my life sort of assuming or thinking that Jesus' parables were stories that were meant to sort of comfort and affirm me. Right? I mean, I'm one of Jesus' followers. I'm on the right side. I'm one of the good guys. So, of course, you know, Jesus is saying all of this for my benefit. And I have to confess, now comes a real confession. It's not about them all. It's something much more real. The older I get, the more I'm forced to concede just how mediocre of a disciple I really am. how frequently I am now forced uh, to realize that Jesus was not siding with me, but appraising me. These parables were not spoken for my benefit, but so that I may be critiqued and changed. Now, I know we, we Protestant evangelicals, which I guess would kind of be kind of the broad stream in which you know, new life kind of swims, I guess, 
You know, we, we, we put a lot of stake in our doctrines of salvation by grace, through faith alone, of sanctification, perseverance, and all right and proper and good as they are. And, 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 and then it shocks us to discover that Jesus is rather uninterested in my doctrinal constructions. He speaks to all people, and especially his own disciples, as if the choice to follow him is actually ever before us. Not a choice you made in the past, at some point in your childhood when you got on your knees, or when you're in high school and threw your stick on the fire, or in college when you walked an aisle. But that choice, that crucible of discipleship is born here, now, today, or not at all. That repentance and faith and obedience are not merely a feature of my testimony from the past, but the demands of me this, this very moment. That the warnings of Jesus are not directed to me as the person I was before I got saved, but they are directed to me right now, relentlessly aimed at me in the midst of my current spiritual apathy, my current religious resistance, my current pious Pride. My need for mercy is not something from my past, but it defines my whole present. We never get past the publican's prayer. We never reach a point where it does not define us, bind us, and describe us. And the church, I mean the church, capital C, like the Christian church throughout all of history, the church has in its best moments always known that the cry, Lord have mercy, is not merely the cry of the unconverted sinner. It happens if you were to go to that, this kind of church, a liturgical style church, you would say it every Sunday. As a believer... Lord, have mercy. It is not the cry of the unconverted sinner so much as it is the cry of the converted saint. Have you ever noticed that the people that we think of and revere in history as being, you know, really the truly holy, obedient people, the ones who really follow God, the great, like, saints, I don't know who your favorite is, you know, St. Augustine or St. Francis or Thomas Kempis or John of the Cross, Catherine of Siena, John Bunyan, Martin Luther, John Wesley, whoever it is. The funny thing about them is that the holier, the holiest people among us seem also to be the ones who talk most about their need for mercy. It's almost as if the closer you get to God, the more stark the difference between you and God becomes. The more glaring our continued sin becomes. The more heinous we realize our rebellion really is. It's only those who are really like far away from God who can have the luxury of saying, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm fine. Things are good. Carry on. No, 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 no. You get, you get into close proximity with divine holiness. You get up close to it. And I promise you, like Isaiah we heard this morning, you, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to keep your feet. It will drive you to your knees. That's what getting close to holiness does. Be careful what you wish for. You may not like it as much as you thought you would. Divine presence is amazing, but it's also very dangerous. For it tells us who we really are. It tells us what we really need. Lord, have mercy.
And yet, friends, we must not conclude this parable in a way it doesn't intend, because this parable is not intended to move us to despair, to make us feel badly about ourselves. It is not just a warning, quite the contrary. The parable is also a story about hope. We see this because of how it ends. We're told the very final line is this. I tell you, this man, our publican friend, he goes down to his house justified, unlike the other. It ends not with hopelessness, lostness, and brokenness. It ends with a man being justified, being reconciled to God. This parable is about the lavishness of divine forgiveness. That with this God, even publicans can be redeemed. If in the end, redemption does not exist for the worst of us, it exists for none. But this parable tells us it does exist, not just for tax collectors, but for wishy-washy, lukewarm, easily distracted disciples like me, perhaps like you. Lord, have mercy. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about it is that the only condition that is here mentioned upon which this justification rests is that we are honest with God about ourselves. That we stop putting on pretenses and we recognize that it is divine mercy that we need, not divine fairness. Who could endure that? We can be forgiven, restored, and justified. So this parable invites us to lay all of our ugliness, shallowness, the banality of life at the Father's feet with the confidence that in that posture, God is merciful, faithful to give us that which we do not deserve. Friendship, life, and a new beginning. And let me offer this then as a conclusion, as the praise team kind of comes and gets ready to lead us at the end. I want to leave you with this thought because I don't know, I don't know if, you know, who you are, where you came from today. I don't know this community all that well. I know very few of you. I don't know if you're a founding member of the church or you just sort of fell off the turnip truck and wandered in today. You know, or somewhere in between, whatever, you know, you are. I don't know what you were hoping for to get out of this religious exercise this morning. Perhaps you're only here because, well, you know, you're supposed to go to church. Or because, well, the, the kids need religion or whatever. It doesn't, the point is, it doesn't matter. The point of this parable is that it doesn't matter how or why you got here. Whether you're a Pharisee or a publican, it doesn't matter. You may have come here as an act of strong faith in a Savior that you know well, or you may have come in the midst of great brokenness, shame, doubt, or sorrow. Point is, it doesn't matter. The demand for all of us, all the time, is the same. We all have the same prayer to pray. Not I, but Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. No more, a, never again, a celebration of my own spiritual value. Never again a litany of my own righteous deeds. But a recognition that I'm here to receive mercy, grace. I am here because I am loved. Not because I am lovable, because God is love.
and simply loves. We come to embrace that truth today and to let it do its work in our hearts. My friends, this morning, do not be too proud to ask what you do not deserve. You will find that God is generous.